To have passion in life is everything. What's your Everest? Oh, is it yeah. that 200 inch box? They just look so impressive when they're wide. Especially running away. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of Eastman's Elevated. It's like a think tank for outdoor activity. Sounds exactly like my hunting. Just always thinking about it, always trying to evolve it and make it better. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Hey, what's happening, guys? Got a brand new podcast for you. So this week, I have on Russ Carone. So Russ is a guy I met a couple years ago, and I just met him through social media, and we kind of corresponded back and forth, and you know, I just kept an eye on what he's what he's doing, what he's working on. The guy just has so much passion for you know the blue-collar bow hunting and, and improving his skill set, and so he's just the perfect guest to have on the podcast. Uh, I have him on uh, late season is fresh in both of our heads, and so we talk about that. But we also just dive in depth into you know the spot and stock game and what you can get away with, and um, it, it's just a it's a fascinating conversation that I really enjoyed that I know you guys will enjoy too. It's a a vintage episode of Eastman's Elevated where I I get together with another passionate hunter and we uh, just hit record and go for it. So um, I really enjoy it. I think you guys are going to enjoy it too. I just want to thank our sponsors real quick. I want to thank Sitka Gear. Um, we have the best sponsors in the business, and I know I say that. Uh, I am so proud to be part of Sitka. And Sitka, uh, for this podcast, they do- donated a pair of Apex pants and Apex shirts. So this is so kind. Like I get to, you know, these guys take time out of their schedules, and they come on this podcast, and they share tips and tactics and and really they share their secrets that has taken years of knowledge to gain and they're just open with information and so you know to have a gift that I can give away every now and again to these guests uh, really means the world to me and so Sitka donated this Apex hoodie and an Apex pant that I was able to give to Russ on the podcast so you'll hear that all about mid-podcast or so I'll break and, and give that to Russ but uh, it's so kind I, I really appreciate it. Um, Sitka gear is the best technical hunting gear on the planet. I really believe that. I I use it for all my hunts. I use it for all my runs. I, I use it for construction work outside. I use it for fishing. Uh, you name it, I use it. And even talking to, you know, some of these fishing guides and outfitters that are my buddies, you know, they believe Sitka gear is the best gear that they can have. And so that's what they run, being outside all day, every day. Um, but I just absolutely love their gear. They have a a system for hot weather, systems for cold weather, and everywhere in between. It just seems like I can I can dial up the the perfect exterior clothing for any hunt I'm going to go on. Uh, like this hunt, I'm I'm just getting ready to leave. I'm going to leave today for the desert of Arizona. 75 degrees down there will be the highs, 30 at night, but it's just got the perfect gear to be able to layer up, keep warm, keep comfortable, keep dry. I really believe in this stuff. So if you're in the market for a new piece of gear, make sure to check Sitka out. Uh, I also want to thank High Mountain Seasonings. High Mountain Seasonings, um, gosh, they make some good jerky. I've been I've been living off their jerky all hunting season, and I'm about out now. I've got some jerky that I've that I've got all sliced up and frozen that I need to get out and make another batch or two. But they've just got all these different jerky seasonings and and uh, which is great flavor for doing jerky. But they have everything for your wild game processing. Everything you need for snack sticks, for summer sausage. Uh, they've got steak marinades that are really good that you can marinate a steak in overnight and then it's all pre-seasoned, uh, ready to cook the next day. So uh, if you're in the market for any of that stuff, make sure to check out High Mountain Seasonings. And with that, see, um, I feel like a like a jet setter here lately. I just, I've been racing around uh, here and there and everywhere and getting things done, uh, both my jobs, family, and uh, getting my runs in, my shooting in. Um, just getting back from a family trip uh, down in Arizona, soaking up some sunshine. Uh, just great weather down there and able to hang out with the fam. And um, So that was good. And, and now just getting back, get a little work done, get organized. And then, um, yeah, I'm going to take off today. I think Dan is en route now to my house. And uh, we'll get all loaded up and get headed down to Arizona and see uh, how many miles we can we can click off. And, boy, I... I should be bow hunting by tomorrow, I would think. So, um, super excited to get down there. 
Uh, I know the Eastmans have been running all the shows. I'm, I think they're going to have me go to the Sportsman's Expo, which is a great one where you can apply for those tags in there. I always like that and, uh, and uh, record some really good live podcasts with guys too. So looking forward to that. Um, had those couple episodes come out on Eastman's Hunting TV on the Outdoor Channel. I'm really proud of the way those came out. Um, and we got some good Beyond the Grids, too. Make sure to check out that internet TV show. Um, just got a new project for the new Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal. Uh, they're going to have me write another Spring Bear article. And then and then um, also when stuff goes wrong, me and Dan both uh, uh, had to shoot at charging black bears this year. So um, I have some thoughts on that. So I can't wait to put this article together and release that to you. If you're not a member or if you're not a subscriber... Uh, you can sc- subscribe to Eastman's Hunting Journal, Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal. Right now, we're releasing all our MRS, our Members Research section, which gives you all that 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 knowledge and input on different states, different tags, different weapons. So you can really get a feel for these different states and start to travel around and take um, advantage of the opportunities that are right around us. Um, you know, some of these, you know, I know for me, these bordering states just have some awesome hunting and awesome opportunity and. Um, it's great to be able to to gain knowledge and take advantage of. So uh, make sure to check out that in our MRS. And with that, let's get this thing rolling. So this is a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. This is between uh, Russ Carone and me, your host, Brian Barney. Eastman's Elevated. Here we go. Hey, good morning, Russ. Hey, Brian. How's it going, man? It's going good. How about you? Pretty good. Just got to work out in and not much going on today. Oh, good. Good for you. You got your morning workout in already, huh? Yeah, just a quick one. Okay. Yeah, I'm trying to trying to work on my my weights in the morning, you know, and that I don't this is early morning hours like you're talking about. I I've never been a morning workout guy which is crazy but i just like it seems like i'm always afternoon evening when i'm getting in my runs for some reason yeah i'm pretty much along the same lines i played college baseball and we always had to lift in the morning i hated it but uh yeah basically i teach and after uh, the school day is done i coach kids in the weight room and then once they're done then i can get my workouts in normally but since it's christmas break i'm excited to kind of get it done in the morning oh man yeah good on you yeah i'm trying to get better we're we're um like i think you're a lot like me where i'm always working on my weaknesses and working to be a better person whether that's you know physical fitness whether that's hunting whether that's family or being a father or my own business you know and so like for me definitely one of my weak points is the morning i've got this bad habit of like waking up and just sitting with a cup of coffee and kind of getting ready for my day um where i could be way more productive just just one spot where i could improve for sure yeah i think i could definitely do a better job with that too it's my workouts aren't great at seven o'clock at night that's for sure (laughs) <laughs> I know it. Isn't that the truth? Yeah, sometimes I'm about out of energy, like at that time of night too. Yeah, it could definitely be better in the morning, huh? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, I'm just gonna get right into it if you don't mind. Yeah, that sounds good. Okay. Um. Well, yeah. So, uh, I just I I met you through social media, and then um, you had a connection with a couple of my buddies. You went out and hunted Hawaii out there, and so you were able to 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 meet uh. Did you meet all three of those guys, or did you just meet Janus and Rob? Yeah, I just met Janus and Rob. Man, what great guys they are. Oh, man, they're just the best, aren't they? Oh, my gosh. I mean, I felt like they were my brothers right away. <laughs> yeah, I I feel the same way. Yeah, they, you know, and, and I'm not sure, you know, I know Hawaiian culture, people make you feel at home, and they, but they just, um, I think they're just good guys no matter where they're from or who they are. They just do anything for you. They're really selfless. They're always looking out or always doing a favor where it seems like in today's society, like um, it, everybody kind of keeps to themselves or doesn't put themselves out there or doesn't want to do that. So it reminds me when I hang out with those guys to just to be a better person and a better friend and to be um, 
to be more giving and um, you know less attached to to stuff. Like they really are good people and good to hang around, aren't they? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I uh, kind of took what they do and ran with it. And these days, when I run into someone on a trail and they look like they have no idea what they're doing, I'll offer them some help or some advice, or if they ask for it. Um, like this fall, I had a rifle tag for a buck, which was the first time I ever hunted bucks with a rifle. Um, and I ran into this couple from Ohio and they had no clue what they were doing, but they were really nice and they were trying not to step on my toes. So I said, you know what, let me show you how to get up the mountain and show you some good spots to look for elk. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it was pretty rewarding too. Yeah, um, well, if if you're wondering, the Hawaii guys said the exact same thing about you. They said that that Russ is the nicest guy around. The guys, he's almost too nice. So that they said the exact same thing and had nothing but compliments to say about you, which made me feel good. You know, like uh, uh, uh just that you were, you know, represented yourself well uh, with those guys or whatever, and uh, I was happy they were able to take care of you. So it was just a great connection. So good on you, Russ. Well, thanks, Brian. Yeah, I really appreciate all the kind of tips and um, tactics. You kind of helped me out big time in Hawaii, and so did they. Awesome. Yeah, I think it's what the what the world is all about. Like you helping those people on the trail. I'm the same way, and there's there's a little bit of secrecy that comes with hunting too when you're on a big buck or a big bull, or it's like how much information do you want to let out when you run into competition in the woods. But I'm the same way as I try to never lie to guys. I always try to be honest, and then you know, like a lot of times, it's just a better way to go if you just connect with a couple guys and go, hey, this is my plan. This is what I've been seeing. I'm going to hunt over here. And then other people, you know, then they'll just naturally gravitate towards other places or vice versa. Sometimes I run into guys and they have the jump on me and it's like, man, you're on that bowl. You keep on them. I'm, you know, I'm going to go find a different place. I'm going to go hunt over here because, you know, in today's day and age, the popularity of Western hunting is growing so much that, you know, it it is part of the hunt is that you're going to run into other guys recreating and so many guys are going so hard now you know but we can all work it out amongst each other and get along and help each other and and everybody can get along and enjoy those woods there's there's tons of of acreage and mileage out there to go enjoy right absolutely and i come from the east coast and it's not the case there at all um man people are protective over their hunting spots and things can get ugly uh and I think the whole attitude there is pretty um, negative. So I couldn't wait to move out west once I was done with college. My wife and I got our graduate degrees. We got our jobs here, and we're never looking back. So it's a, it's a great place to live. Good on you guys. Where do you live at, Russ? Uh, western Colorado. Okay. Yeah, it looks like you're just always out enjoying the outdoors, whether that's hiking or um, scouting or hunting. Uh, looks like you do a lot of fishing. Um it's it's so good for the soul, isn't it? It is, man. And I originally was a fisherman growing up. I didn't hunt at all. I started hunting in college when my buddy uh, got me into it, one of my teammates, and uh, went on a hunt with him. It's the first time I ever went hunting, and we got up early, hiked in, and he shot a buck, and I was hooked. So, yeah, fishing fishing was my first love, but, man, this hunting bug has got me good. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I absolutely love to to fish, and um, part of my goals in 2020 is to to fish more. I, you know, I was able to travel to New Zealand in this past year and hunt, which was just amazing. But through that, I kind of gave up my Pacific Northwest steelheading trip, where we head with our fly rods and we head to the um, Olympic Peninsula, and there's like 20 different river systems that are all glacial fed, and so like I really missed out on that in the last year. Um, so I want to make that trip happen. And then, um, like I love fishing the flats, like fishing the flats, like in the Bahamas and, um, the keys and different places and it can get spendy, you know, but you know, I know some guys that have some boats and then also like, I just want to go to the Bahamas and wait around for like bones and, um, permit and tarpon. I'm, have you ever fished, um, for those before Russ? Man, you know, I've done a lot of steelhead fishing, um, I went to school at University of Buffalo in upstate New York, right next to Canada, and those Great Lake tributaries are really, really good steelhead and big brown uh, fisheries, but 
Um, no, never flats. I've wanted to do that, but just haven't had time yet. Oh man. So the flats are cool. So that's really neat that you've been steelheading and experiencing that. Like, God, those fish pull and fight hard and acrobatic. And those ones off the Pacific Northwest, like right there, you know, on the Olympic Peninsula, they're like, you know, no further than 20 miles from salt. And some of them you're catching them five miles from salt with sea lice on them and bright silver. And some of those fish are so hot you just don't even have a chance to land them. You know, they just, they're running back towards the ocean and you get tangled in a root ball and you catch about half your fish if you're good, you know? So that's cool that you've experienced that, but that, that flats is really cool. Like it's a combination between hunting and fishing. And so like whether you're on a flats boat or whether you're wading through the water, like you're looking at all this different underwater uh, uh, feature character and it can be like seagrass that's dancing down there it can be white sands it can be a mix it can be scrub it can be all these different bottoms and then different depths depending on the tides from you know one foot all the way to four foot and then there's these blue holes out there too that will hold fish and so you just kind of paddle through and you never you never false cast. You hold on to your fly in your hand with all your fly rod right at your feet, and then you just kind of pull through these flats or walk through these flats, and you're just like you're looking for fish. And it takes a little while to develop to see them in the water. Well, like you know, like spot and trout, like how it takes okay. like a or, or steelhead or anything. Like it takes it it takes getting your eye right looking into the water to actually see them they blend in so good but you're just hunting looking for them and then once you find them then you get like one pressure filled cast and you've got to put it you know like 5 feet beyond them and then like a couple feet in front of them so then when you're stripping hard you strip it right in front of their face and get their attention and then they'll be following your fly and when they finally take it and grab it you know those salt fish can fight so hard that they just start peeling line off your reel and you're just into the fight of your life you know and so that salt water is addicting man you love it wow i think i would it's just like spot and stock bow hunting yeah yeah exactly um, i uh... I've actually, I don't know if I should be saying this on a podcast, but I've heard that Hawaii's got some great bonehead, bone uh, fishing as well in the flats there. They do. It's tougher in Hawaii. So I've done it a little bit, and I'm always trying to fit in everything on a trip. So I'm trying to hang out with my family, bow hunt, and I'm trying to bone fish in the mornings when the tides are right at 5 a.m. I'm out there, you know, wading out there in the flats trying to catch them, and they do. So Hawaii has great fishing and great fish and great bones for that matter. But they um they're really big they get bigger there than than anywhere you can catch a 10 pound bone out there but it's yeah. not the classic flats fishing like that the bahamas has you just can't see into it there's more depth to it uh, uh it, it just doesn't fish like the classic flats and so you do end up doing a lot of false casting for them and um you know i've gone over there with my bonefish flies and waited in the mornings i'm yet to hook one i saw a big one hooked up um yeah but but I haven't figured it out yet over there. But then again, I'm talking about, you know, one spot on one island that's good. Like, I, I need to explore a little bit more out there because I'm sure a guy could find some, some good bone fishing out there. I'm sure, yeah. What uh, what rod are you using, like a 9-weight? Yeah, I like to use um, – I, I use just a little bit lighter rod. I'll use like a 7-weight for bones. Oh, okay. Yep. And then usually you have multiple rods in case you run into permit, you know, permit or bigger. Um, it, it, you have a, a rod tied up for tarpon, you know, and tarpon you're using a big 10 weight or a 12 weight, you know, and um, those things are amazing to jump those and to play those. And, and those you catch about one fish out of every five you hook. But it's so awesome to see a hundred pound fish in the water column and throw a fly to it and have them eat it. Oh, my God. I can't even imagine but, um, you know, like, like most of us are like your adventures, this is, uh, like it's, it's a blue collar, right? You're a teacher and we all have to kind of save our money and spend it in the right ways. Um, and you've done good going on a bunch of adventures and me too, but I, I have to watch it because a lot of those places are pretty spendy, you know, to go oh. after tarpon or to pay the guide fees on the boats. And so, you know, you just got to be a little bit more crafty and figure out what the blue collar experience is. You know, maybe it's a vacation rental by owner and then it's walking the beaches and maybe you pay a guide one day, you know, to 
to gain some local knowledge and and to get some insight into it and to hook up and do well and then take that you know take that knowledge and then use it for yourself and i'm still really green on the flats but i absolutely love it sounds like a blast yeah in terms of being thrifty my mom calls me a skin flint i'm pretty cheap but (laughs) when there's something to spend money on that makes a lot of sense i'll do it um and my wife and i got married five and a half years ago and we finally went on our honeymoon um and that was that hawaii trip actually but we camped seven out of nine nights on the beach um so yeah i mean you can save money here and there and camping on the beach in Hawaii. How can you beat that? Who wants to spend 200, $250 on a hotel? Oh, Russ, that's so cool. Yeah, you are thrifty. Um, that's the way to travel, isn't it? It's like, um, I, you know, there are life is so expensive nowadays. It seems like just your bills, even trying to keep your debt load down, your bills per month just to run a household or to to have a family. You know, it costs so much money just to to have decent things. And you know, I don't. You know, I I live in a nice house and I drive a nice vehicle. I've got to be able to trust my vehicle. Sometimes it's my life. Like on these late season hunts, I come back to my vehicle. I've been gone all day and it's ten below and I'm fifty miles from the nearest town. I have to have that thing start like otherwise I'm dead in the water. But yeah, we do have to be, um, you know, crafty. It seems like the American way is just to, to get into debt or to create such a debt load. And then you're just working for that debt. It's so nice. Like if you can actually save the money you make and spend it on what you want to spend it on and then try to try to save, um, you know, along the way, or at least that, that thought process. I think it's so beneficial to like living an adventurous lifestyle to just have a little bit of extra money to go here, go there. Absolutely. I mean, I've got a camper and uh, I went out to Nebraska four times this year, but I only took it twice just because it costs extra money to take it. And I can sleep in the back of my forerunner just fine. So, you know, if that means I can save enough gas to make one more trip out there, it makes sense. Oh, good on you. That the gas, um, it adds up throughout a year, you know, going on these hunts. That's like the one thing I'm pretty thrifty and I, it really hurts me to spend money. Like I, you know, on my family or what, you know, if I need to pay some, you just pay it or whatever and get it through. And like I say, life is so expensive, but that's the one thing that, that I just don't feel bad about. I've been doing it for so many years, scouting and hunting and I get such a return on my dollar and I've got like this mindset that I am, you know, a blue collar bow hunter. And so putting gas in my rig is, is just the cost of operating. Um, yeah. But it, it sure hurts when gas prices go up. Yeah, it does. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, but, that uh, looked like an awesome adventure. Um, so you talked about your rifle hunt. Um, was that a rifle hunt in Colorado this year, Russ? Yeah. Um, I usually I bow hunt pretty specifically, and I think I've only shot a few animals with a, with a rifle, just mostly cow elk. But uh, I picked up a turned-in tag. Didn't draw my archery tag this year, so I picked up a turned-in tag, and it was about a month before the season, so I checked out that area. I'd never hunted it before. Uh, I was like north central Colorado, and um, it's just like a one or two point draw unit, so not nothing special. Um, so I had one day to hunt, really, uh, maybe two days because I was so busy that time of year, and shot like a 140 inch four point buck. It's the first year I saw. Didn't have time, but it was it was fun, man. I mean, when there's no pressure on a hunt like that, just go out and no expectations, no points. It's a blast. Good on you. Had a good adventure then. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, so much of it is, is making, you know, part of being a blue collar bow hunter is that we have to work all the time to make a living. And so like our, um, you know, our time is so limited. And so a lot of times it is like a weekend trip or, you know, it's a, a one day trip like what you had. I know I've been hunting late season here as well as you. We'll get into some late season hunting because I'm sure we can relate. Uh, oh, yeah. And, and my spot's fairly close. It's just a, a bump away from where I am. You know, one unit I was hunting took me about five hours to get to, maybe yeah, about five hours, I'd say. The other unit is like maybe three, four, but, you know, icy roads this time of year, that can, can easily double in time. And so I was adding up, you know, I I did um, 
Let's see, I did a couple of early season states. I did a, a late season mule deer hunt in Montana, my home state. I was successful there, hunted with some family and did that. But then after that, I ended up making four different trips, you know, down to this spot. So it's, you know, five hours there, five hours back or whatever it is. And I just look at the, the, the time I spent and the mileage just to get down there and give myself an opportunity, you know, cause I just had weekends and had to work throughout the week and maybe I'd add a day here or there. The, the same, the same type of hunting that I think you were doing late season, you were traveling a bunch, trying to get down there. You know, some days are good. Some days are bad. It's just kind of the way it is. But, um, boy, you got to get used to that windshield time, don't you? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I get out of work done training athletes at like six o'clock, seven o'clock. And then I just hit the road and drive seven hours, get to that spot. I was hunting by one o'clock in the morning or so, uh, wake up and have like three days to hunt, head back, get home at like, actually the, the weekend I shot my buck. I shot it at like four o'clock, like right before dark, got it all boned out and packed it. That was a long pack surprisingly for that area i had to go six miles with it and got back to the truck at 6 30 i think seven and uh hit the road got home really late then went to work the next day i mean it's a it's a grind that time of year but it's worth it oh it is worth it isn't it congratulations on your buck um man you worked hard for that one. Oh, those sandals <laughs> they're tough man i you know people talk about axis deer and how hard they are to hunt and how how uh, spooky they are, but man, those, those Sandhill, Nebraska mule deer, they're, they're tough to get close to. It's just so wide open out there. Man, I'm with you. Um, mule deer were my toughest challenge this year. I think I hunted, I, I blanked all early season, Colorado, Wyoming. I think I had like 15 days into those two states and I'm looking for a good buck, but still like, um, I had my chances and I, it was, it was the best adventure I had all year, but I came up short, then hunted Montana, was lucky enough to arrow a buck there. And then this late season for, like I say, 11 or 12 days, Man, these things just, um, they humbled me. Like, uh, it reminds me why mule deer is one of the toughest species to kill with those, you know, during the rut, um, you know, the bucks may be rutting, but the does aren't, you know, they're, they're on point. Even some of the bucks I found, they, once they grow to be five, six years old, man, they just don't let their guard down. And I've had a couple bucks that'll just flat out leave the does once they know danger's there. They just get out of there. And some of them, you know, or breeding the does at night and then not hanging with them, you know, during the day. But yeah, man, um, mule deer pound for pound, give me one of the best challenges. And so this year, I mean, I was fortunate enough to have, I don't maybe 40, 45 days hunting mule deer and nothing humbled me more. I came away with one really good buck in all those days of hunting. Yeah. He was a beauty. Nice looking buck, Brian. Oh, thank you, Russ. Um, man. So I have a question for you. How, uh, how many does were in some of those bigger groups with like, let's say one buck or two bucks with a couple periphery bucks. How many does are you seeing? So, um, so early, early in the season or during the rut, they were smaller groups. They were, um, five, six, seven does, something like that. They'd be with, uh, most of the time. And I didn't really see any of those bigger groups, but as it gets into the later season, they start grouping up into even more. And so when you're hunting them in the late November, December hunts, um, it, I would routinely see 20 does with the bucks that I was chasing. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of some of my close encounters and how many does were around. I mean, there, there'd almost always be 20 around. Maybe I'd find a, a buck with, with 12 does, but really big numbers. It seems like as it got later into the season or maybe the area I was hunting too. But I do think as it gets later in the season, they just get bigger groups of deer as they're looking for those does that haven't been bred to come back in. And, and plus just winter range deer, I think like group up in bigger groups to get ready for the winter. What about you? Yeah, I was uh, seeing the same thing. That's why I was kind of wondering because um, I started hunting mule deer out in the Midwest there. Uh, I guess it was like mid-November. And that was actually closer to Thanksgiving. Um, and, yeah, all the groups that I was seeing were between 20. And I even had a group of 35 does with two bucks. Um, and one was the target buck that I was trying to get on. I had to watch them at 
anywhere between 90 and 150 yards for 30 hours for four or five days, a couple stocks and a couple bumps. And it was just really tough to get in on 60 plus eyeballs. Man, I'm with you, Russ. I'd run into the same challenges. And in that late season, it can be really tough to be patient as it's so cold. It's so bitter cold that really you can't hold still for more than an hour. So no matter if you have all your layers on, you know, if it's below zero and you got a north wind, it's like good luck. But I found the same way. I was trying to – I learned a, a good lesson in patience again, you know, as you just can't force it with that many deer or those bucks. And so you're right. I would play it the same way, Russ, where I'd get in to 90 to 150 yards. I mean sometimes I'd be further. Sometimes I'd be closer. Um, man, I had a buck last weekend that I had – had him at like um does at 30 40 yards and then the buck crossed at like 60 70 but never quit moving i never got a range at him in fact i wasn't even thinking of shooting i was trying to creep in so like just this this patience just this when you creep in like lot not letting those deer know you're there like keeping that element of surprise and not pushing it to failure like you only take what they'll give you and it seems like with these deer a lot of times you get in close and all of a sudden you've got a doe looking at you or you're too close to the does and can't keep going to get to the buck. And so you just have to hold up and have to wait. And you're just trying to wait, just trying to let something happen, let something develop. Sounds like that's the way you were playing it too. Oh, 100%. I mean, I, I've been listening to your podcast for a long time and I credit a lot of my spot and stock success to you. And I have your voice running through my head. Patience kills the buck. Patience kills the buck. Move like the hands of a clock. I mean, I'm all these things are kind of my mantras too. And uh, I, you know, I did my best, but I blew it on this really old buck that I was trying to shoot. Probably four or five chances and a couple miss miss shot arrows, and it was a frustrating time out there. But what a blast! Good on you. You um, you enjoyed it throughout all of it right and part of the reason we love it is the challenge and how difficult it is and and man i mean you did it right you earned yourself a couple opportunities you know they're just it's so tough to close on them and it's so tough to execute your perfect shot and then even if you do sometimes you know those bucks are notorious for jumping strings i think one in four maybe even one in three will jump your string i'm gonna I'm going to try to go to a heavier arrow this year, too, and see if that helps a little bit, um, quiet down the bow a little bit. But, yeah, those things are just um, – they're bad for jumping strings. And then, man, it's just – it's so difficult. Like I say, I had 12 season, twelve days in the late season. Russ, I never earned a shot. I got back to full draw maybe a couple times. Um Man, it was just trying, it, and especially in the deep snow. It just seems like they could hear me before I'd get there, and so – I just need to play it even more patient. I made one bad mistake the the last day I was there, ended up bumping the buck at 150 yards. I didn't even get close. You know, it was just so still. It, like, wasn't even the right day to hunt them. Like, if I was smart, I just would have backed out of there and said, no, I'm just going to hunt them tomorrow or wait for the conditions to be right. But he betted by himself, and I had a tree in between me and him. He could just hear me coming through the snow. I just couldn't be quiet enough, you know, and so – like, I think it's just – it's so challenging, and I think that's, like, why guys like me and you love it. But failure is a prerequisite. I failed – you know, I was looking through. I posted, like, my success photos this year, and I had a ton of success. But what sticks out in my mind are these different failures I had for day on day trying to harvest a mature buck where I, where I couldn't do it. And failure is just a prerequisite. It's just going to happen in bow hunting, I think. It for sure is. I, I played baseball, and, you know, if you're batting 300, you're doing amazing. That means you could strike out seven times out of ten and be good. Uh, so, yeah, I'm used to that, and I think that's what drew me to bow hunting is just that it's not easy, and I love the challenge. And, yeah, I mean, I, I'd i say that archery was my uh, one skill this year that I kind of neglected. You know, you've got your fitness. You've got your hunting skills. You've got – your your uh, scouting, um, you've got your gear, and then you've got your archery, and I neglected it a little bit too much. Got a little too cocky last year. I tagged out pretty quickly on a few animals, and uh, just didn't shoot enough this year. So that kind of got the best of me, and I made a couple bad shots, uh, one on an elk, and then one on this this muley out in Nebraska. 
and he's like a 170 inch buck, but man, he's like eight, nine, just Coke can bases and just, just the kind of buck you, you dream about shooting. And I got, uh, 15 yards from him one time actually. And he was bedded down and kind of like tumbleweed, just like a pile of tumbleweed on the edge of this field. And I snuck in on him and I stood there for an hour and a half, just waiting for him to stand up. Finally he stands up, no shot, beds back down. So I kind of got antsy and didn't listen to your, to your mantra there. Patience kills the buck. And I tried to sneak in. I got to like seven yards and, uh, he popped up and took off and no shot, but yeah, I mean, between, between that stock, I mean, that was, that was so exciting, man. I, I wouldn't trade that for the world. Oh man, you got the right attitude. When you enjoy it and enjoy the process and enjoy everything about it, you know, and your experience and like you're just happy to be there and and be trying to kill that buck. Like that's what it's all about. And it it crushes you when you don't get that buck when you stalk like that and it doesn't come together. I mean, it crushes you at the time. But if you can really like look back at it and go, you know, that's fun. I'm living my best life. I'm out here chasing mule deer like I truly feel alive and it it sounds like you reflect upon it and, and have the right attitude about it, Russ, and enjoy it every step along the way. Yeah, I just I have to shoot more this year and uh the one the one really good chance that I had to shoot him, I missed him at like fifty yards. I got a miss range on him. I think I I think I was holding a little high on him too. I just kinda I kinda rushed it. But between that and a bull that I made a bad shot on, I I need to focus more on archery, and I think if you have that attitude of just kind of having this after-action report, I think that's from the military, but uh, I use that in everything that I do. Anytime I fail in anything, I just analyze it and try not to get too down on myself and address the, the dysfunction, whatever it was, and move on. Gosh, it's so smart, and it's so tough to do, isn't it? Like the human ego wants to take over and pad your ego and tell you that it's okay. You did all right, you know, or this is all right, but you, you're right. Like you just can't, you can't rest on your laurels of what you've accomplished before, or you can't, you can't just coast or phone it in, especially with a bow. And even though I'm sure you shot and you prepared like crazy, like, like how, um, intelligent and introspective, of you to just like look back on your season and go, you know what went wrong? This went wrong and I can be better and I'm going to commit myself to the next year to be in the best shot I can. You know, what, whatever, you know, your journey is to get better at bow hunter, whatever you need to work on. But man, it's so smart to, to do. Um, I'm so impressed Russ. Like that's, that's the key to success is what you're doing right now and, and why you've been successful in life, you know, throughout, like, uh, I love your baseball analogy, by the way, like, uh, a batter that bats 300 still strikes out like two out of three times. Like, uh, that's kind of bow hunting, isn't it? Like, you know, you're going to make mistakes, you know, you're going to fail, you know, you know, you don't want to miss, you don't want to have bad things happen or fail on a stock, but I I just know it's going to happen. Even all the years I've been bow hunting all the stocks, I still make mistakes. My last big muley buck of the season, I made a, a critical mistake on and spooked him and never got a chance at him when I had him located, nobody around late season. Like it just happens. And all we can do is learn from it and get better, but it's the perfect attitude, man. Yeah. It's, it's taken a long time to get to that point. I used to get really upset with myself if I messed up. And, uh, but yeah, at this point I think, well, my wife's a psychologist, so she's kind of, she's kind of ingrained a lot of that into me and helped me out, talk me, talked me off the cliff edge quite a bit but um yeah it's taken a long time to kind of settle in and realize that you know it's the long game you just gotta just gotta take the failures as they come address them and move on but uh yeah i think the main problem for me this year is i i really love shooting a recurve bow i always have since i was a little kid before i even started hunting my dad had a recurve and he let me shoot it and Man, I just love shooting that bow. But I got my own recurve last year and um, really started getting into shooting. And I shot probably 5,000, 7,000 arrows this summer, getting ready for archery elk. Um, and then I didn't shoot my compound very much at all. I think I only shot like 40 arrows all summer, um, which is very not like me. But I was so sad not on using that recurve. But, you know reality sets in and when you got a bull at 50 yards and you're really only effective to 30 
you start weighing your options like, you know, do I want to get an elk in my freezer or do I want to shoot a recurve bow at an elk? So I picked up the compound and then just wasn't really prepared like I normally am. So yeah, that won't be a mistake I make again. And next year I think is going to be a great year for me. Oh, I'm sure of it. Yeah. Um, how great. You got a psychologist living with you to help uh, uh, sharpen your mind. And we're all just a work in progress, too. We're all just working on ourselves, trying to get better, trying to get stronger, trying to get a cleaner thought process of, of the world and our understanding of it. Um, man, that's what life's all about. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, awesome. So you're getting ready for um, 2020 now. Um, you got some tags that you're going to apply for. You're a resident there in Colorado, so you got some really good opportunities there. It sounds like you blanked on your, your archery tag last year. Yeah, the unit that I hunt's pretty close to home, and I really recommend to anyone just trying to hunt as close as they can to their house so they can scout as much as they can because there's good bucks in every unit. But um yeah, I, I hunt in this unit close to my house. That's like a one-point draw and for archery. Um, and I didn't get it this year, so I'll get it, or I didn't get it, you know, in 2019, so I'll get it in 2020. And um, there's a couple really nice bucks that I found during scouting for elk. So I think that I, I can find a couple good ones this year. But, yeah, I've got that, and I just hunt over-the-counter over the elk. Um and then I'll pick up like a second season or a third season cow tag for just like a reserve meat. And I'll give meat to people if I shoot a bull and a buck. Um, and then, yeah, I'll go back out to Nebraska. But I'd love to start hunting Idaho a little bit more. Just it's hard to get the time, man. You got to pick and choose. Oh, absolutely. Right. And get in that work too. You're saying you, you uh, lift and train athletes like um, after school or whatever. Is that uh, high school athletes? Yeah, so I'm a PE teacher at a K through 12 school, so I have every grade level every day. Uh, it's kind of a zoo, but um, it's a blast. And at the end of the school day, I train our varsity athletes in the weight room. Um, but yeah, that's that's what I do for work. Oh man, awesome. Um, I see, uh, Russ. We've got awesome sponsors here on the podcast. I see you sick of gear. Yeah. Yeah. Big time. Right on. Um, have you tried their Apex gear yet? You know, I haven't yet. I've I've been I love hoodies and I have their like lightweight hoodie. I use that in Hawaii too, man. That that is a necessity, just protecting your skin from the sun. But um, I'm yeah, I use that fanatic hoodie and that light hoodie all the time. But yeah, I haven't tried the Apex yet. Oh, dude, um, perfect opportunity. So uh, we've got these awesome sponsors on the podcast like Sitka, and I'm just so grateful. But they give me um, sets of things to, to give away to guests on the podcast. And so for this podcast, I have a set of Apex pants and an Apex hoodie for you to try out. So um, like you say, you fall in love with Sitka gear. You already know like that lightweight hoodie. That is the best layer. Uh, so is this Apex. This Apex, I use the hoodie nearly all year long, either for layering or as a top piece. It's a merino wool. It uh, it comes with elbow pads on it that you can pull out of there if you don't like them. Uh, and the pants are great, too. The pants are really good for early season to mid-season, and then you can layer underneath them. Um, you know, as it gets into late season or whatever, they come with the knee pads or you can pull them out. The knee pads are so nice if you have to do any crawling, but, uh, I'll send you a set and you can try them out. No way, Ryan. That's really nice of you, man. Thanks so much. Yeah, no worries. My pleasure. So, uh, hang on after the podcast and I'll grab your address and your size and we'll get them off to you. Yeah. Sounds great. Um, that elbow pad sounds pretty awesome because man, in Nebraska, I was belly crawling probably three quarters of the day every day. Um, and there's those, those jumping cactus, what, do you know what kind of cactus? Oh, yes. Cholo cactus. Um, yeah, oh. the jumping cactus. Oh my gosh. That is the worst cactus out there. They have that out there, huh? Yeah, they do. And then, you know, there's, it's basically just yucca and then like prairie grass and those, those cacti and man, they're brutal. I have, I have just spots like on my knees and my elbows and I wear those, uh, like I think Timberline pants from Sitka. So like, I guess above the knee pad, I got a few, a few sticks and, um, a few needles and then a few like on my chest and on my hips. 
man, that place is brutal to stock, but it's so wide open and you have those rolls in the sand hills. But when you're trying to get from 150 to 50, you're belly crawling. So that sounds amazing. Thanks a lot, Brian. <laughs> yeah, you bet. No, that worked good for you. Man, that belly crawling, or you kind of do whatever you need to do, right? Sometimes you're walking in a crouch, sometimes you're crawling, and then sometimes you're just dragging your belly across the sand with your elbows. You know, it's so slow and so, um, it, like, uh, I can see, like, where your weight training and your physical fitness really comes into play. It is exhausting to try to move that way on animals, but you just do what you need to do to, to get in tight. I know that bull I killed this year, I think I belly crawled for, like, three hours to get into the herd. And at some point, like, I was, you know, I was hardly hiding or I had to come off a little sage hill. And so, like, I just have my face just an inch away from the ground and I'm just dragging myself ultra slow to try to get across. But that's such an art and a skill to like, uh, to, to, or maybe it's not even an art or a skill. It's like, you just do what's necessary, but boy, is it like physically exhausting to try to crawl in that way? Isn't it? It really is, Brian. I mean, by the end of the day, I mean, you're, you're so focused on the buck and, trying to make it happen you don't realize how exhausting it is but by the end of the day you sleep like a baby and this time of year it's dark for so much of the day so i don't know it's dark at five o'clock and it doesn't get light till seven so and it's blowing wind and it's 20 10 degrees whatever it is so you're not like hanging out outside your pickup or your or your suv so yeah i'll just jump in the forerunner and i'm i'm out for like 12 hours some nights Oh, I know. There's so much sleeping. I got to be careful I don't sleep too much or I'll be awake throughout the night, you know, like like wide awake. So, yeah, it's like uh, I got to try to keep myself awake till like 9 or 10 o'clock and then go to bed. And then, you know, I can wake up at a decent hour. But you're right. It's dark so much. Um, but you do. You're just so exhausted at night that sometimes I can't help myself. I'm asleep by 7 or 8 because I've already had dinner and it's dark out and I'm sitting there. And, and like you say, you can't hang out outside. You can't even hang out around an outside fire really that time of year when it's that cold and the wind's blowing. So you're right. Yeah. You're just either in a teepee with a stove or in the, in the truck, you know, trying to keep warm. And, um, you know, if you don't have the truck running or if you don't have a heat, then you're tucked in your sleeping bag. And if I'm tucked in my sleeping bag, I'm usually asleep. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> the story, man. I mean, I think one night I slept close to 14 hours, and I, I sleep seven hours a night normally, but I couldn't <laughs> believe how long I slept, and I was exhausted. from. I mean, those hills, there's a lot of public land out there, and some of those places you got to hike way around a, another property on public just to get to where you want to go, and it could be six miles, so most people think, you know, Nebraska, yeah, you just walk 100 yards from your pickup and, you know, set up to hunt, but... Um, yeah, there's some public areas there that are walking that you can get way back. So I'm hiking 10, 15 miles a day every day in the cold and belly crawling. It's it's a grinder. Man, that um, it does sound like a grinder, and it's not fun all the time when you're there in the cold weather, but it is fun, right? It's like the best adventure ever, and I love I love hunting that way. So you can hunt in different styles, and even in that late season. I mean, if you want to, you could cruise around in your truck looking for a stock. You're not going to be as effective or anything, but you could keep warm and comfortable in there. But the the real hunt or the real fun of it for me is I like pushing myself. I like getting out and getting that exercise day in, day out. I like, you know, making a hike here and a hike there. And, and truly, you are way more effective than if you're just like everybody wants to take the easy road. There's there's too many guys already that are driving around or there's too many guys like you need to use your truck as a tool. And, and just like you're sleeping in yours or get, using yours for shelter, I do mine the same way. And you use it a tool because, you know, you can travel these, these huge amounts. You know, you could travel six miles or 10 or 20 miles very easy in, you know, half an hour and be in a totally different spot hiking into virgin country. And so there is a necessity there, but you can't lean on it too much. You've got to get out and go put in those miles and go check out you know, the, those remote areas, I truly feel like mule deer, even big bucks, they learn their rutting grounds like year after year that are away from roads and away from access. That's the reason they grow up to be four, five, six, seven years old, like that big, 
gnarly one that you're chasing out there, he's survived for so many hunting seasons. It's because he doesn't rut close to a road. He ruts in basins that are tougher to see, tougher to access, more remote country. And so I just think like getting into that remote country, you know, even sometimes now, like on my late season hunts, there was times I got, you know, started hiking in a, in a foot of snow. And by the time I get to the top of the mountain, there's a couple feet I'm pushing, you know, it, it really exhausts you throughout the day, but it's so worth it. That extra effort just turns up deer and, and gives you opportunities. I feel like, did you run into that in Nebraska? For sure. You know, where I live, not so much because I'll go six miles into a wilderness area here and I'll see 20 people. Um, and I think that Colorado just a- attracts a certain type of person that wants to get out and wants to uh, put in the miles and, and find these remote places that older, o- older age class animals live. But out in Nebraska, I think it's just in their culture. There's not a lot of out of state people that hunt there. So it's in their culture that they just kind of drive around, look for a buck and they shoot it. And, uh, you know, they mostly rifle hunt. So bow hunting's just a paradise over there. Sometimes you'd come out and hunt it with me. It's a blast. Oh, man. Yeah, I'm sold. No, it sounds uh, – I'm always interested in states I haven't hunted. And so, like, all those South Dakota, North Dakota, Nebraska, all those ones look appealing. And Nebraska has such a good season, too, that gives you some good late-season opportunities out there. And I know it's tough, man. My late-season spots have been just as tough. But, uh, yeah, man, that's awesome. I'd, I'd love to do that one year. Yeah, the uh, season opens like September 1st and goes to December 31st. So you can hunt them early season all the way into that late season through the rut. I mean, it's it's a blast. Wow. How'd I'm you gonna... get to how'd you get to learn that spot, Russ, uh, coming from Colorado? Um, you know, it's the next state over really, and um I grew up in New York, so all we had is white-tailed deer and I guess there's some bears there too, but not really where I grew up. Um so yeah, that's kind of what I what I grew up hunting uh, in my early twenties. So um, love whitetail, just can't get enough of them. And when I moved out here, there were no whitetail. There are no whitetail on the western slope. There are on the eastern slope, but um, I also have never hunted mule deer. So I've got to hunt a mule deer in Colorado. And I guess the the option for me is to hunt whitetail in Nebraska. So started hunting Nebraska and. I guess 2015 or so. And, uh, I've shot a couple nice whitetail bucks over there, but I've discovered this mule deer property just kind of out of the blue and checked it out. And sure enough, found some really nice bucks there. So it got the wheels turning and now I'm just looking for really similar looking places in terms of topography and distance from the road and, you know, having crop fields kind of within walk, you know, uh, like an accessible distance for these deer to live. So basically they'll just go down into those crop fields, whether it's corn or alfalfa. Um, and then they will hike like two, three miles back up into these sand hills in the morning. So I'm trying to catch them on transition and find them in their bedding and I can't hunt the crop fields. So yeah, it's, it's just an interesting little kind of chess match over there. Man, how cool. Yeah. It sounds like a lot of fun. Um, it's really cool how you've developed that spot over the years. And it it's amazing when you just put yourself in a new unit or a new spot, just like that muley spot that you found. Like just putting yourself there, you, you just find deer and find spots. Like that that's how you find places. And it doesn't happen all the time. I mean, I have plenty of trips or tags that I go on where, um, you know, I don't turn up what I'm looking for, a scouting trip where I don't find a, a shooter buck and then I'm back to the drawing board. But it just seems like if you put yourself out there enough, and I know even me, I hunted a, a new unit this year in the late season, and I had never been there. And you just go and kind of make yourself a, a scouting game plan like you have, you know, where you're looking for a certain distance from roads and from crops. And, you know, same thing what I'm doing. I'm looking for, you know, the habitat that will support them in late season from past knowledge or from knowledge I have about the species. And then you just go down there and go all in and start looking at some spots and hiking in. And it's just amazing what you can turn up and you can you can turn up and develop this brand new hunting spot and and just like you said earlier in the conversation, you said there's there's trophy bucks in nearly every unit in Colorado. There is. There's so many good bucks throughout the West and all these states and all these different units. And yeah, you may strike out here or there, but eventually you keep putting yourself out there. You just find gold, you just find good spots that 
that gives you opportunities away from people. I, I mean, I think that's that's truly like the fun of hunting the West. Good on you for developing that spot and learning it. Oh yeah, it's it's a blast, and uh, I I look forward to it almost as much as anything. Um, I love archery elk and bugling bulls and early season mule deer in the high country, but it's just it's tough to beat that late season. Uh, either whitetail in the rut or mule deer in the rut. Oh, it sure is, isn't it? A, a mule deer are so thrilling. The rut is so fun to hunt. Yep. I, and, I, and, uh, that Hawaii trip, too, I was actually kind of nervous going out there because I had heard all of all the stories about how hard access you're to get close to. And, um, you know, I've never hunted that place before. And I've really not done a whole lot of adventure hunts, like, way outside my normal comfort zone so um it's kind of surprising it's really not that different wherever you go there's there's these similar characteristics that you're looking for and after like a half hour of being on that island i figured out where i needed to be and where the animals would be and how to do it and it didn't take long and i and i shot that nice buck so i mean i think for anyone that's trying to do like an out-of-state hunt or an adventure bow hunt just get out there and do it Boy, that's the truth, and start figuring it out, right? And like each species in each habitat can be a little bit different, but the skills they transpose. Like a, uh, if you're a skilled bow hunter hunting, you know, mule deer in the high country, you can transpose those skills to hunting them in the late season, and you can transpose those skills into hunting axis deer in Hawaii. And, and they they are different, but it it's those those skills transfer over and so you learn a little bit about the the new species you're hunting and i just love like for me i mean part of the joy of bow hunting and i love mule deer more than anything and i love elk just as much and i you know antelope is is just as high on my skill like i every bow hunt i go on i love with every fiber of my being i love immersing myself just on a new species and a new habitat and trying to figure it out whether it's coos or axis or um tar elk mule deer you know whatever it is uh caribou like they're all a, a little bit different but those skills just they they transfer over to where you can use those to help get yourself opportunities and help be successful so i mean really that's that's um what i've done across the west is just taken the skills that i've built and taken them to different places places on different species and i think if you're good at spot and stalking and you really develop that skill that you can kill any era any animal in in north america or the world for that matter yeah it's such a great skill to master and um i'm a long ways from that but every every year i get better and it's it's super rewarding i i used to be a tree stand hunter in new york so um it was a whole different ball game for me when i moved out here and i i love it i don't i hardly whitetail hunt out in nebraska anymore because it's hard to just sit still in a tree stand and that's the best way to hunt them out there but uh hey i have a question for you about like montana decoys for mule deer so you brought up antelope and i know people use like the the cow decoy sometimes to stock in on them yep have you ever done that with mule deer like in the rut no, I haven't. I'm such a fan of spot and stalking that a lot of times I take the more difficult way to hunt things. Yeah. I do think that they would be advantageous. So uh, that buddy, uh, there's a buddy of mine, uh, uh, Brandon Van Dyken, that's part owner of Be the Decoy. And so I've had in-depth conversations with him about them. And then like just being around the hunting world and seeing hunting videos here and there, talking to Brandon, talking to people that do use them, I think they would be really advantageous. I think like you, you put on that, that doe head and I don't think like you can walk up on them or sneak up on them with it. But I think like where it really pays benefit is like when you're trying to shoot that buck, when you've got to get to your knees, you've got to come above the grass. You've got to expose yourself. Like hardly ever do you get a shot on an unsuspecting unsuspecting deer. I mean you do. That is the goal. But like with 30 does, like in your case, with a buck right there, to get up above the grass line and get your bow drawn, like something may catch some movement in there. And I think that's where if you have that doe hat on and you come up, like they may just look at you for a few more seconds and give you that shot because they're curious or they don't know what you are. Like I don't know about decoying in or bringing them in. So I guess that would be like the Montana decoy. That's maybe what more what you're talking about, huh, is like the, the pop-up 3D one 
Uh, yeah. So I was kind of, I was thinking about getting one of those cow and I'm in the same thought process of, of, uh, just trying to get it done spot and stock. But in a situation like I had this year with this great buck at like 90 yards and I just can't get any closer than that, or he's at 70 or whatever it is. Um, and there's just not a good opportunity for a shot just to get like, I don't know, 10, 15 yards closer to make that good ethical shot. Um, I was thinking maybe trying next year that cow to the kind of, it's like a moo cow and, you can hold it in front of you and walk behind it. And if there's cattle in the area, I would imagine, and there is cattle in this area, I'd imagine that they just kind of look at you. And what got me thinking about that was I found them one day bedded down. There was like a group of 30 or so. Um, and they were bedded in those sand hills, and some of these cattle just walked right by them. And the deer just looked at them, didn't think anything about it, and didn't even stand up. So I don't know. My wheels are turning on that one for sure, Brian. Oh, okay, I got what you're saying. Okay, so um, yeah, so there's different ways to go, right? You got the be the decoy, the hat that that may help you out. You've got a 3D decoy of a deer that you could set up that may bring them in, or like you're saying, the cow decoy, and they make the big cow decoys and go up. So I've got a buddy that's hooked on those cow decoys. So yeah. he uses them for antelope, and he loves them. They're able okay. to to walk up and sneak up and use them on antelope. I haven't heard of them being as effective for deer and species because it is like just a 2D cutout, and it seems like those deer seem to pick up on it. But I haven't used it either, and I also haven't seen it used on deer. And so it'd be silly of me just to like think that I know or think that I know that they're going to spook. I think um, I think you try it out and get back to me and let me know how it yeah. works. Yeah, I mean it seems like ridiculous, but – I mean, it could just be the ticket. It, it could be just crazy enough to work out there. Man, um, it could be. Like you say, they get really used to cattle, and whether that's elk or deer or antelope, God, I've always seen them cross by cattle. They don't get alarmed by them. Um, that, well, they just have to live with them the, the, in today's day and age as we have a lot of um, – you know, a lot of uh, cattle guys um, will graze their cows on public land during hunting season. And so there's just cows that intermix with, you know, these animals all the time. And so I think you're right. I think they get used to them. I'm I'm not sure if it'll work or not, but you're right. It might just be crazy enough to gain you that extra 10, 20 yards you need to be able to get the shot. And I'm like, um, you know – I love the spot and stock game, but boy, if you could play into an animal's weakness more than their strength sometimes, I, I think it, it, it'd be smart to take advantage of that. And sometimes I'm too bullheaded and don't try stuff like that, but I think I'd do better if I did. You know, If I would use a blind in a certain scenario where I've got antelope crossing a fence and dial in on them and I can kill the biggest buck in there um, – or, you know, like you're saying, like to gain that extra 20 yards to use a be the decoy hat and pop up and have some ears and a doe head when I'm hunting them during the rut where those deer might just stand and look at me for 10 more seconds and give me that shot at that buck. Because a lot of times, you know, that's where I run into problems is trying to get up to my knees, trying to get drawn and I get seen. And by the time I get drawn, then that buck's starting to spook or whatever, you know. And so, God, if I could just buy myself a few extra seconds. So. I need to I need to uh, uh, be more open to some of those ideas, and I'd I'd probably, you know, like I say, this late season hunt has been so tough for me that if I could just have something that would give me a little advantage or help me a little bit, I may have filled that tag this year. Yeah, just to level the playing field a little bit, but um, yeah, it's it's not easy out there, and it almost feels like cheating if it does work, but. I mean, whatever works. I mean, the, my shot process takes maybe seven seconds or so. And a couple times I drew back on that buck and I needed like two more seconds because I had five or so. And then by the time I'm just about settling my pin, he'd start moving or he'd start bounding off with the rest of the group. So I think, yeah, just a couple seconds could really make a difference. I'm with you. I've been paying attention to my shot process and how much time it takes for me drawing to anchor, to settle, to execute a good shot. And I'm with you. Yeah, five to seven seconds right in there is about what it takes me. It, it'd be nice to try to shorten that up during the season, but I also I can't start rushing, rushing my shot where then I'm not as accurate or I'm not executing correctly. Um, it, it's just a it is a tough game we play, isn't it? 
It sure is, Brian, and that's what makes it so awesome. Right, that's the truth. Um, well, right on, man. Russ, this is a great conversation. I sure am glad I connected with you on the podcast. Um, you've got such great insight into bow hunting. Oh, well, thanks, Brian. I mean, I have learned so much from listening to your podcast and talking with you over the over the last couple of years. Really appreciate everything. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. We'll hang on after the podcast here, and we'll get your size, get you that Sitka gear sent out. And, uh, yeah, thanks again, and, um, yeah, good hunting in 2020, man. You too, Brian. All right, that's a wrap. Oh, fun, in-depth conversation with Russ Carone. Um, I just absolutely love this podcast and these these in-depth talks that I get to have with these guys and compare and contrast notes on on how they're successful and they're you know they're blue collar guys that are doing it the same way I'm doing it the same way you guys are doing it. Um, it's just so difficult out there and so uh, when somebody starts to solve the puzzle and then you can have an in-depth conversation, I think it helps us all out, uh, helps shorten the learning curve and I know just by doing this podcast that. It, it's made me a better bow hunter, you know, talking to these really good, consistently successful guys. I, I just pick up tips and tidbits that, that I can apply in my own hunting. And we all kind of get, you know, our own style of hunting or we, we kind of evolve into the hunter we are. But, you know, through this, it just gives you, you know, how other guys do it and, and things that you can apply in your own hunting. So it's just so awesome. I love doing this podcast. Thanks, you guys, for downloading uh, every week and listening to the podcast. I really appreciate it. Uh, thanks to Russ Carone for taking the time and being on. Uh, thanks to Sitka Gear. Um, it's just amazing that they're giving away that Apex hoodie and Apex pant that they give that to me to give away on the podcast to, to some of these um, guests that I have on it, it just means the world to be able to give them something like that. And, um, and really nice gifts, something that they're going to use. Um, and, and just an appreciation from, from me and from the podcast, man, it's just awesome. So thanks again to Sitka gear. Uh, I really believe they build the best, uh, technical hunting gear on the planet. And, you know, you don't need to buy everything that they make. It seems like, you know, I'll just do an upgrade every year of one or two pieces of gear, crucial pieces that are really going to help me out in my hunting, help me stay more comfortable, stay dry, whatever it is. Like, I think the the first piece I would buy is like their puffball coat. It just seems like I use that cold mornings on the vantage point. seems like I'm always using that jacket. You know, next one would be the, the heavyweight hoodie or the apex hoodie, both just great hoodies that I wear nearly every day I hunt. Lightweight hoodie is a good one, but, you know, just a couple key crucial pieces that'll help you out there. So if you're in the market for new gear, uh, make sure to check out what Sitka is offering. Uh, I also want to thank High Mountain Seasonings. Just everything for your wild game needs. Uh, I love their jerky seasoning. I'm using that all season long. It's keeping me alive while I'm out there chasing trophy critters. So I really like that. But like I say, snack sticks, summer sausage, uh, steak marinades. Uh, they have a bunch of different products. Make sure to check them out on their website. And thanks for their support at High Mountain Seasonings. And with that... Um, see, get this podcast out. Uh, I got another good one next week. I just been having some awesome conversations. Um, so excited to release them to you guys, but yeah, get these couple podcasts ready and, uh, gosh, I'm going to pack up my gear and get out of here to Arizona. Uh, go do some hunting with my buddy, Dan. Um, he's in route right now. So yeah, finish up my work here and get on the road. And I think I'll be bow hunting by tomorrow if all goes right. So, um, Super excited. Uh, just so fortunate I get to get to do these hunts and um, take advantage of these opportunities that are around us. So um, super excited. So I'm going to end this podcast and uh, get my stuff packed up and get on the road. Thanks, as always, guys, for all the support. Um, really appreciate it. Uh, make sure to check out uh, the other stuff that Eastman's puts out. The Beyond the Grid is the Internet TV show. Find that on YouTube. Uh, you can find Eastman's Hunting TV on the Outdoor Channel. Uh, of course, we've got the magazines, Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal, Eastman's Hunting Journal, uh, and the podcast, Eastman's Elevated. So uh, thanks as always, guys. I appreciate it. I'll check in with you next week.